Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm about to speak with uh, Chris Barber, so-called organizer of the Freedom Convoy, and his lawyer, Eva Chipiak. But I want you to know this. We are not going to be speaking at all with Mr. Barber or his lawyer about the ongoing criminal mischief trial during this interview and because it is before the courts. I will say this, though I've been told this is the longest-lasting mischief trial in the history of Canada. So, um, Chris Barber is suing the federal government and has entered a statement of claims for Ottawa using the Emergencies Act to freeze his bank accounts and credit and debit cards, as well as making the lives of the Barber family and operating their Saskatchewan trucking business exceedingly difficult. The lawsuit follows the federal court, of course, ruling the Trudeau government violated the Charter of Rights of all Canadians, or the Charter Rights of all Canadians, by invoking the Emergencies Act. According to Mr. Barber's lawyers, by freezing the bank accounts, credit cards, and debit cards, the federal government violated Section 24 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Chris Barber and Eva Chipiak, his lawyer, join us. Mr. Barber, thank you for taking the time. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Grant? Thanks for having me on, Roy. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. I'm glad to have you on. Ms. Chipiak, good to speak with you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no, it's it's important. And this is a story that uh, that uh, uh, made headline news yesterday, and I want to pursue it with you. So, uh, Ms., uh, Mr. Barber, the, uh, the suit against the federal government is based on Section 24 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and allows an individual to sue the government if charter rights have been breached. But that's 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 the lawyer position, the lawyer's argument. What was it like for you to have your bank and credit cards frozen? What was that? What was that like? It's pretty scary, to be honest with you. Um, you fear actually using your debit card to this day, whether whether you do something that the government doesn't approve of, that they can actually shut your bank accounts off when they disapprove of your actions. I guess. And and what what impact did it? I mean, let me ask you this: what, what was the first time? When did you first become aware that the government had taken this step? Because they didn't they didn't inform you beforehand, did they? Uh, I believe it was uh, it was it would have been right through the middle of the protest when uh, I had no access to funds, bank accounts were frozen. Uh, of course, they went an extra step farther. They froze my joint bank accounts with my wife, my spouse Rael. They froze my corporate business accounts. I lost. Uh, payments returns on fuel accounts. So if, if anyone in the trucking industry knows that we're in a trucking company, uh, the minute you have a return on a fuel a card lock card within the trucking industry, you make your employees extremely very, very nervous. And it, it creates to a lot of doubt, um, as well as this financial impact going forward from that. I've been denied credit with banks. I've been running my business basically off of a of a line of credit and cash situations for the last couple of years because of these, uh, just because of the fear that, 
that has now been put into people dealing with me, I guess, in, in the business. So, so people you've dealt with for a, a long period of time, because your accounts were frozen by the government, they're now demanding payment from you uh, through a line of credit. I've not, I've not been issued that the, the line of credit has been closed. Any future banking, any future funding needs that I need for my corporation have been declined. I haven't had any luck getting any successful loans. What I have to do now is take a lease out instead. So technically, I don't own that piece of equipment. I don't know like I would have before. Wow. Mr. Pick, what's the argument in court? What is Section 24 of the Charter? Well, so thanks for asking, because I, I did want to correct you slightly. It's as the Section 8 is what we are arguing was breached, and that's the um, right to... Uh, um, well, we're saying that there was an unlawful search and seizure. So there was a breach of the Section 8 um, charter right, which is to protect you against an unreasonable search and seizure. Um, and the reason we're claiming this specifically, too, which, you know, we've been waiting on that, the federal decisions, but Justice Mosley in that case was specific to say that there was a breach of the Section 8, um, so they did unlawfully search and, and seize, and um, Section 24 is very important, and that's where individual Canadians, when there is a breach, can um, sue, as, as we're doing in this case, for that breach under Section 24, and that um, there's a couple components to that which are important for Canadians to understand. So Section 24 identifies that there was a violation of that charter right that uh, the Canadian should be vindicated for um, because that breach ought not to have been um, breached and that for that that right shouldn't have been breached and then lastly it's meant to deter the government from doing it again and that's that's what section 24 says mr barber uh, how long was uh, were your accounts frozen your credit cards in your bank accounts uh payments on uh, certain payments were returned nsf um, it was basically under the week that the, the accounts were frozen uh, due to the nature of the $400 million class action lawsuit against us right now. If it's the citizens of Ottawa, my, my personal bank account at Toronto Dominion Bank was frozen for three and a half months. So you have a class action lawsuit against you. Um, is, is Ms. Uh, Chipiak, is this going to go to court? Um, the... Class action? No, the uh, Mr. Barber's case. You know, it's a good, very good question, and given the federal court decision, it would be very hard to understand how what the the federal government's defense is going to be, because a federal court judge has said that this was unjust, and the the federal government certainly breached their rights, charter rights. What happened yesterday, though, and I, I haven't received a copy, but the federal government has appealed that decision. So I, that's going to just slow things down a little bit, at least. Uh, as long as that decision from Justice Mosley is upheld, which I expect it to be upheld by the Court of Appeals, again, I can't see what kind of defense the federal government is going to suggest that you know, either they didn't breach it when a court decision or, or a court has already found that they did, or that these clients or Canadians are not owed any um, 
you know, any compensation for this egregious uh, charter breach. So whether it goes to court, I, I would suggest likely not. But, you know, things are a little bit, things are strange in court. And I'm sure um, Chris has seen way, way too much of courtrooms and has sworn way too many affidavits for any one Canadian to do. To, yeah, to, to so we won't go there because of the... The, the criminal mischief uh, trial is still underway. Um, yeah, and that's just the one, though. Like, yeah. yeah. So even the class action that you meant, he's been had to be quite involved in that one. And right. Yeah. If the federal court of appeal were to overturn the federal court decision that Mr. Trudeau violated the charter rights of all Canadians by invoking the Emergencies Act, uh, what would that do to Mr. Barber's lawsuit? Anything? If the Court of Appeal overturns it, then it would say that he was justified. That's what, likely, but maybe not. Because, you know, the decision was quite thick. It was almost 200 pages. So there might be one portion that they're appealing, maybe not every single item. Um, Based on the evidence and what I've read um, in the decision, I I can't see how they're going to overturn the whole decision. And as I mentioned, I haven't had an opportunity to read their appeal, so I don't know if they're appealing a certain portion or all of it. They might not even touch the Section 8 charter breaches. I, I don't know. What's it do uh, to, to your uh, daily life, to your family life, to your daily interactions with people you, uh, you interact with on a regular basis in Saskatchewan as a trucking firm owner, Mr. Barber, when they... When they shut down your accounts and uh, and your and your your accounts are frozen, uh, what does that do to your to your daily life? Uh, well, quite significant change. Uh, really, we we any, any engine work. If you're in the trucking industry, you know that the trucking industry is a very volatile industry. It's up and down. Uh, we are, you know, we've lost a couple engines in the last couple of years and some trucks and. And to get those the financial means to to put those new engines on those trucks, the cost of the industry right now is through the roof. So a motor job in a in a in a semi can be anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. And with the way the economy is right now, and with this carbon tax that's hitting and crippling Canadians, it's making it harder and harder to keep a balance in those bank accounts good enough to fix these repairs when it comes. So when when you're hindered on your financing ability, it, it it's a direct hit. What, what do you uh, what do you want from the federal government? What are you suing them for, for? For how much? I believe it's two million dollars. And, and is this a, a mischievous? Is this a, if it's not if it doesn't go to court or not all of it? Uh, how quickly will this will this particular situation this 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 claim by Mr. Barber be resolved? Considering the fact that the criminal mischief charge, as I understand it again, is the longest criminal mischief charge uh, trial in the in the history of Canada. Is that correct, yeah, by the way? That's my understanding on the length of the mischief trial. As for how long this would take, it really, it really would be hard to know. And just to provide some context to the $2 million in that, it's, it's not just a $2 million pay up here, but it's actually broken down into certain uh, different damages. So general damages and aggravated and punitive. And I just wanted to mention that because uh, in Canada, if, if you don't get, go to the court systems a lot, you don't get very large um, um, court awards generally. Mm-hmm. But the punitive damage is um, the, 
the amount is a million dollars just in that one. And punitive is to tell that it's meant to tell the person getting sued that, you know, you went, your actions were really poor. And in this case, this is not just anyone. This is the government. They have an obligation and a duty, you know, that should be held to a higher standard as well. And so we've never seen anything like this in Canadian history. There's nothing like this in law. So these numbers a little bit had to be, you know, it's not like we had a precedent to go with, Mm -hmm. but there definitely should be a message to the government. And that's where Section 24 of the Charter, again, comes into play, because it's meant to show Canadians that these charter rights have meaning, they have value, and the government can't just come and breach them willy-nilly. And that it's meant to deter the government from doing something like this again. So those were some some of how the numbers came up with. Okay. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. There continue to be ongoing investigations, both uh, external and otherwise, into the contracting process. Uh, It is obvious that uh, the contracting process rules were not followed uh, in this case, and we need to make sure that there is accountability and transparency around that. But let us remember uh, that during the pandemic, Uh, We were reaching out to try and keep people safe, keep people alive, uh, make sure that our economy didn't falter at a time where uh, everything was in question. Even in those most difficult times, we need to make sure the rules were followed. when uh, public servants in this case did not follow the rules adequately, there will be, uh, there are investigations and there will be consequences. No idea. Absolutely no idea what he just said. I've listened to that clip at least a dozen times, and I have no idea what he said. There were contradictory terms within terms. Sixty million bucks. Can't be sure, because the Auditor General, and this is what they do, right? This, the auditors in the Auditor General's department, their job is to track money, how it's spent, where it's gone. Who's received it? What happened to receipts? Where's the trail of our Canadian taxpayers' money? And the Auditor General doesn't know. Now, do you just have to think about it for a second. Do you know how screwed up it has to be for the Auditor General not to be able to determine where the money went and estimate it 60 million bucks? Do you think all of that was just by accident? Hmm. I'm sure my guest doesn't. 
Let's talk to Michael Barrett. Mr. Barrett is the Conservative Party of Canada's Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government. It's quite a mouthful, Mr. Barrett, Ethics and Accountable Government. I'm not sure I've encountered that recently. No, after eight years of Justin Trudeau, uh, I have ended up being the busiest shadow minister on Parliament Hill. Tell us, please, what kind of week it's been, because uh, I, I know, and as many people do from news reports that we've been hearing on globalnews.ca, that the owners of GC Strategies have been summoned to appear before your committee again. Are you expecting them to do that this time? Yeah, these are the two individuals from the firm that was paid $20 million to do no IT work on the failed $60 million Arrive scam app. They've twice been summoned, but have refused both those summons. This time it's a little bit different, Roy. If they refuse to appear within the 21 days that they've been given, a warrant will be issued and they'll be arrested by the House of Commons, uh, the parliamentary sergeant at arms, who will then um, present them to Parliament and they'll be released once we're satisfied uh, with their appearance. So, um, yes, I'm, I'm confident that they're going to appear. So this is a fait accompli. Uh, the other political parties, particularly the Liberals and the New Democrats, will not torpedo the sergeant-at-arms arresting them if they don't come. Well, look, we, we withstood a two-day talkathon by the Liberals, a filibuster in their attempt to prevent the committee motion from passing. Uh, but... Uh, you know, the prime minister, he, he's been talking a very tough game in public, but his his government members at committee have been doing their best to cover up um, what senior Trudeau government officials know about this scandal. Uh, but that's not going to stop us. Look, the, all of these liberal MPs and uh, liberal members, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, voted against Pierre Polyev's motion in November of 2022 to initiate the audit uh, by the Auditor General that that um, blew the lid off this thing. And um, just like uh, we pressed a committee this week, and as a result of that, the Information Commissioner, as you noted, has launched an investigation. Just like we had the Procurement Ombudsman uh, initiate an investigation, and we know that ArriveCan contractors uh, are under RCMP investigation. This is $60 million at least. And um, you know, Canadians need answers, and uh, I think that Canadians need some of their money back. Well, we want answers. Absolutely, we want answers. Give us the highlights, please, of what happened uh, this past week at your committee. Well, we were successful in in, in passing that motion, as uh, as I just noted, um, that will uh, result in the founders of GC Strategies coming before the committee. That's incredibly important because the total amount of their work contracted um, has doubled in uh, in the findings of the Auditor General, but LaPresse also reported a week ago that the total amount, um, this two-person company, these two guys working out of a basement of a suburban Ottawa home have received is $258 million uh, that uh, first started flowing to them in the weeks after Justin Trudeau was elected Prime Minister. Um, so that's, that's more important than ever. Uh, but we also had uh, um, two suspended uh, public servants appear before the committee who um, made uh, who made very explosive allegations about what's gone on, including uh, about the um, the destruction of documents. Um, we, we had the information commissioner before committee this week as well, and following that hearing, 
um, she announced that uh, she's launched an investigation. So the, the the work of the committee can't be understated. This is incredibly important. So um, so new information is now available to to the independent officers of parliament who are yet to investigate. Um, but also it gives a direction um, to the committee because we, we know uh, where to look and the questions that we need to ask about. Um, the the allegations that were raised this week. Some of them, uh, Roy, you can understand, I can't raise outside of a parliamentary committee verbatim uh, because they, they're just that, um, just allegations at this point. But um, it's uh, needless to say that uh, the most senior officials uh, in, in Justin Trudeau's border agency and procurement department um, are, are responsible for this, but also... Um, they said that they were reporting up to the Privy Council office. Now, the the Privy Council is the Prime Minister's personal department. So the the, the Prime Minister has acted quite surprised, and you know, uh, as has uh, Mr. Uh, Singh and Blanchette. But both of both of them, uh, the the um, third and uh, fourth uh, place party leaders, um, voted to give more money to the Arrive Can app after it was already failing Canadians. So um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, a lot of um, culpability uh, amongst these individuals, but the, the, uh, the accountability uh, rests with, um, with the ministers, with cabinet, and with the first minister. This is, this is the prime minister's responsibility, and he seems unapologetic about it at this point, but um, uh, we've we've called on him to commit publicly not to use the powers of the executive to shield him from any inquiries the RCMP might make, um, as he has done in previous cases like SNC Lavalin, uh, because that's not what those powers are designed to do, and um, they're not to protect uh, uh, designated public office holders and and elected officials who haven't exercised their fiduciary responsibilities to protect Canadians who you know. Are struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, well, the auditor general doesn't know where the money's gone, and that's the auditor general's ex expertise and her staff's expertise. If they don't know where the money's gone, up to sixty million dollars, if they can't follow the trail, if they can't follow the money, that suggests um, something doesn't smell quite right for the Conservative Party of Canada, Mister um, Barrett. How much money did you say was? Directed toward GC strategies, those two guys in the basement in Ottawa after yeah. Trudeau came to power. Uh, Lapresse reports the number is two hundred and fifty-eight million dollars, a quarter of a billion dollars, um, to two people for IT contracts that are admittedly uh, not IT specialists. They they don't do programming. Mm -hmm. When it comes to this uh, arrive can or arrive scam, as many people are saying. Do you have any idea? Do you know the names of all the subcontractors hired by GC so, Strategies? Do you know? Well, this is a really interesting question. Um, and the Auditor General uh, noted this when uh, I was questioning her, that subcontractors are beyond her, uh, her powers, the powers of her audit. So the Auditor General of Canada can't see who contractors uh, subcontract how does that happen? Well, th this is a very broken system uh, where um, where Justin Trudeau's ministers and Justin Trudeau has allowed uh, the has allowed the the system to be uh, abused in such a way to shield those 
who are uh, who are abusing it from from the scrutiny even of the auditor general. So, which so let me. I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I were yeah. to if I were to um, put in a bid for a contract and uh, to the government, the Trudeau government, and they had accepted my bid and they'd sent me uh, or written me a check for let's say five million bucks, and then I subcontract much of my work. And it comes into question later, did Green really do the right thing with that money, taxpayers' money? Well, let's check it. Let's see where it's gone. And we'll engage the Auditor General. And the Auditor General says, whoops, Green hired some subcontractors, and I just, just don't have the powers to pursue it. That, that's, is that, that's what you're telling us. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the level of accountability. That's insanity. Trudeau. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And the... Uh, it, it gets worse because the Auditor General flagged, and actually um, one of the principles of GC strategies admitted under questioning um, when uh, before before the situation had gone from bad to worse uh, for them and, and frankly for Canadians um, with this, this $60 million scandal, they admitted that they had taken the credentials, the resume of a subcontractor that they were going to use to win a bid, and they took the contract requirements from the government and pasted them into the resume, and then submitted it to the government. Oh, my so goodness. They, yeah, and, and the Auditor General uh, believes that um, this was widespread. And this is why uh, it's so, uh, the question that I put to senior uh, Trudeau officials this week at committee was, is there a mechanism where they can, um, they can reclaim uh, this, some of this money for Canadians? And they said, well, if there's findings of wrongdoing, then, you know, certainly we could. I said, well, uh, my comment to them was, if, if people are submitting fraudulent documents to win bids, that sounds like exactly the type of thing that's grounds for Canadians to get their money. Yeah, Mr. So, Mr. Barrett, so you, so you said the two individuals from, um, from GC Strategies are required to appear before your committee. What's the first question you have for them? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that uh, um, when you when you look at uh, some of one of the pieces of information we got, Roy, and that was that uh, it's alleged that GC Strategies was able to write the requirements um, for bidders of a contract. They wrote the requirements for the Federal Public Service, and then it was tendered by the Federal Public Service. And of course, GC Strategies were the only ones. Uh, who got uh, who got the work because they wrote they wrote it out. How how it is that that was allowed to happen? How it is that they were selected to work on a rise can, but there's no paper trail. No one in government will will take responsibility for having selected these two guys. So not only will anyone not say that they did it, there's no evidence that anyone ever picked them to give them these these uh, tens of millions of Canadians tax dollars. And so couple of, uh, a couple of hundred million total. Well, yeah, a couple hundred million uh, over over the eight years of Justin Trudeau's tenure. But I mean, just uh, at twenty million just for this app that you know wrongly sent ten thousand Canadians into fourteen day quarantine under threat of uh, of prison. But in the in the less than a minute we have left, do you see a um, an ad scam situation here times a hundred? Uh, what what I've seen is a failure of Justin Trudeau and his government to uh, protect Canadians, to protect their tax dollars when they don't have 
uh, enough money to get them through the payday and are lined up at food banks in record numbers, mm-hmm. and we see this kind of scandal, mm-hmm. um, I think that uh, um, you know, I, I think that uh, the the mechanism of accountability for Canadians they're going to have to exercise at the next election um, will be very cathartic for people who've had um, fallen on hard times after Justin Trudeau's exactly. been in government. Former NHL and Team Canada goaltender Don Edwards. And I say that only because Don will be understood. I mean, you, you, if, if, you, if you follow hockey and you know Don Edwards, and, and it, for some reason it, it makes, it can make a more of a personal connection because we kind of feel like we know athletes because we watch them and we want to be like them. But uh, Don and his family have gone through an absolute horror for more than 30 years. His parents were murdered by one George Lovey in 1991 near Hamilton, Ontario. And we've talked to Don before, and, uh, but there have been developments now. Lovey had been dating Don's sister, Michelle, and when she stopped seeing him, Lovey sexually assaulted Michelle. A little background here. And then armed with a rifle, he waited for Michelle under her porch one morning. And when he emerged, Michelle ran to her parents' home with Lovey chasing her. Lovey broke into the home, sorry, Don and Tennis, and shot to death Donna Edwards and then stabbed Arnold Edwards several times, shouting, how do you like me now? George Lovey has been living under day parole for some time, maybe listening to this program right now, two nights per week at a Correctional Service Canada halfway house and five nights a week at an apartment he's rented. The Edwards family remains very much fearful of Lovey, who had a hearing scheduled for March 8th, during which the National Parole Board was to hear his appeal for full parole. Well, a great deal has happened in the past few weeks in this particular case. Don Edwards and his wife, Tannis, join us. Hi, Don. Hi, Tannis. Good afternoon, Roy. Thank you both for, thank you both for, for joining us. Um, what, what can you tell us about the status of Lovey's parole journey at this juncture and what happened on February 13th? Well, um, it was interesting. There was a parole board decision that we were unaware of. And in preparing for the upcoming parole hearing on March 8th, um, our statements for that hearing had to be in by uh, February 15th. When we got news that there was a uh, parole board decision uh, on that, there was uh, a great deal of, of information that came out that we were completely unaware of. And boy, did it spark our attention and uh, focus to detail now. Uh, we are all over this thing. We've, it's sort of been night and day um, uh, to try and get ready for the upcoming hearing. But we've also got tremendous uh, advocacy in the community and uh, elsewhere. Um, just recently, I've spoken to Larry Brock, the MP from Brantford. I've spoken to Dan Mize, the Hamilton Mountain MP. Uh, they're going to be in Ottawa uh, barking up a scream there for us, hopefully. And uh, we've got, uh, you know, my sister's been very busy uh, getting support and advocacy from the community and getting them to put in community statements. And I know, Roy, you've been an unbelievable advocate for us for 30 plus years, and uh, we can't thank you enough. Oh, it's anything I can do for your family. I, 
gotten to know quite a few members of your family over the years, and you're a wonderful family, and you're living under this terrible cloud and still concerned about Lovey being a danger to you. Uh, let's just look at this in a little bit of a compartmentalized structure here. So a parole hearing uh, took place on February 13th without you being there, without you being aware, and your victim's impact statements had to be in by the 15th. So they went ahead before you were um, required to have your victim's impact statements ready. They went ahead with the hearing for Lovey without you even being made aware. I mean, that that just sounds that just sounds bizarre, and it sounds alarming. Um, the the original um, the intent of that parole hearing, Roy, was to extend his uh, his day his day parole because it was about to expire, but. In their in their decisions and some of the writings, there was some information that came out that just absolutely floored us, and uh, so that's where we are now. Was trying to dig through all that information, and then we've, um, as of yesterday morning, I had to get on the uh, phone with the the uh, victims' uh, uh, services to try and get our deadline extended. And we have no appeal, as you're aware. Um, uh, and, and by rights, they have no uh, right to extend that deadline for us. But uh, the individual that handles our case we went to her boss and we were able to get new statements and submit them by March 1st. So that's been a big help to us. But, you know, digging through all the mountain of information we've received now is, is quite enlightening. Yeah, I, I read something. I mean, you sent me uh, the report from that, uh, the National Parole Board's review of Lovey, and he got he gets that. and. He, probably the first one to get it, because it's addressed to him. And uh, what, what I found particularly interesting is the National Parole Board uh, insists in that report that Lovey, who's been in prison for several decades, they insist that he has sufficient funds to live without employment. He, he, gets, he receives old age security, which is an outrage. And that was not supposed to happen according to legislation passed in 2011. Well, he doesn't get it when he was in prison. Maybe when he was in parole, he got it. Not sure how that works now. But he, they said he has OAS and a small pension. So he's got, he, has the, he has the funds, the wherewithal, to live reasonably comfortably, I suppose. How does that strike you? Well, it strikes us uh, terribly, Roy. There's just so many of us that... Um, are living day to day. Two people have to work in the household just to make ends meet. Uh, we have this offender that's never worked a day in his life. Um, but after some research today as well, we find out that every inmate that's been incarcerated for uh, 12, mo 12 consecutive months or more receive an inmate trust fund. So if they work, uh, you know, clearing snow or raking leaves or, for instance, Lovey worked at a golf course, he gets paid for that and goes in this trust fund. And when he is released, or if he's ever released, he gets that trust fund after they take away certain things that he may owe for, um, which is not much because uh, the Correction Services Canada must supply him food, a warm place to live, a decent clothing, all of those, of those things. So. We're trying to get down to the bottom of why is he receiving this money? Where is it coming from? How's he got money to buy a, a house with his uh, so-called stepmother? 
you know, there's there's a lot of things that uh, we we have numerous questions regarding, and also his risk to reoffend and be into the community. Right now, this last parole board had that he, they stated that he has exhibited. Um, um, he's rated as a spousal, a spousal assault risk assessment. He is rated as high risk of violence towards a woman or partner. Mm. So after 30 some odd years, yeah. he yeah. has not taken any classes or done anything to, um, you know, better himself with his anger management. We've discussed this in the past too, Roy, that we're well aware and we were uh, aware of it very early in the first 2011 parole hearing that um, Levy has followed a, a path of integration um, at his own wishes. He has not uh, complied to the um, education um, that is educated, that is the uh, um, designed by Corrections Canada. And uh, so he's really followed a path as, as, of his own leisure and not one that has been uh, the direction of uh, uh, Corrections Canada. Don and Tannis Edwards are with us. Uh, Don's book, After the Game, Victim of Violence, um, is in, you're, you're still working on that, Don. That's a work in progress, right? Absolutely, because it's the stuff from the recent hearings that have to go in that book that is so uh, important, right? So I've seen your victims' impact statements. I've known your family for many years. Uh, I, I know from from you both how terribly disturbing it is for you. How the system has actually treated Lovey, and I've heard from family members of murder victims in the past. That when they go to the parole board, they treat it almost as uh, as a nuisance, as a, as a superfluous presence, and uh, I I, I kind of get the feeling that that's the way you're being treated. But your family is particularly important, adamant that Lovey must not be allowed to live or go to certain areas where he used to be. And, and tell us why that isn't. Do you think the parole board is actually going to pay attention and listen to you? Well, I, I think it's pretty simple, Roy. We're, we're, we're quite aware that he is, a, he is a threat. As recently, and I think we've talked about this briefly in the past, maybe privately, that at the most recent uh, parole board hearing, the last one we had, that we were all present, all the family was present, we learned that Lovey threatened to stab his caseworker. So... Um, you know the thought of 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 him um, killing someone or um, you know injuring them, uh, uh, harming them is still very much there. I mean, it's not gone away. And, and I find it very interesting the decision that came out February thirteenth. There's no mention of that of that uh, threat that he said to the case worker who was a woman. Um, so um, we've got to be aware of the threat this this individual. Uh, poses to us and uh, you know he knows where we are but we have no idea where he will be if he's granted full parole because the police will not be watching him that's that's correct um the police have indicated that wherever he goes if he is granted full parole he is uh 
deemed as a law-abiding citizen, and there's no reason for them to follow him or have any concern for him because we've wondered what jurisdiction he would fall under, whether it was a city police, the OPP, how's he going to transfer supervision? He once had said that he would wear an anklet bracelet to travel, but the problem is no one's going to, we don't know who's monitoring it. So, I mean, it's all well and good on what he says is going to happen or what he wants to do. We just need the parole board to really take notice of this evil person and what it could do to everyone in the area that he's going. He's he's a risk to society in general. Do you it both just, do you, you both know. believe that the parole board actually pays close attention to and has um, real interest in your victims' impact statements and your presence and the and the points you've made repeatedly? through the board, or are you just, as some other victims, family members have said to me, just deemed to be uh, almost a nuisance? Yes. Uh, we are a nuisance, and more importantly that, Roy, I don't think Corrections Canada have the resources to follow them. Uh, they may imply that they are, but it's simply the fact remains that they do not. Um, that once he walks away from the institution, they have no way of monitoring his day-to-day whereabouts. Okay, what's the story now about Lovey and his stepmother? What, what's going on there? What, what, what can you tell? What can you tell us? Well, we know we do know this that she's quite a bit younger than what his father was, and his father has since passed away. She's quite a bit younger. We believe he's she's very similar to the same age as George Harding Lovey. Um, and you know, our stinks, instincts are are high that you know there's certainly maybe possibly a bit more of a relationship there um, than just support. Um, we have no way of knowing that, but you know, your instincts and your hair on your back gets up when uh, a stepmother that had very little to do with him because it was a, a second marriage of not many years uh, and really did not know uh, Lovey uh, when he was, uh, you know, when this, 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 this uh, crime was committed. So uh, we find it very interesting to, you know, um, you know, this whole bit. So there is a definite concern, and our, and our suspicions are high on this. Well, um, he will be in the, uh, he's uh, asked for uh, another travel permit for February 28th through March 2nd. He left on January 8th was another date that he went to go and assist his mother-in-law in, or, sorry, his stepmother in finding um a place to live and now he's going out again we believe to do the same thing only probably um agree to whatever it is that she's choosing he's definitely building plans to uh, moving forward roy and and it is a concern to us so you're you're afraid your family's afraid of uh, george lovey uh, committing harm again or attempting to commit commit harm to the Edwards family, the extended Edwards family. What about the? Uh, what about your, your? Um, let's go with the federal representatives, your members of parliament. How are they? Uh, how are they responding? Well, when I spoke to Larry Brock this morning from Brantford, he had no idea um, that uh, George Harding Lovey was even uh, coming back to the area. He was going to speak to his uh, other regional reps. Uh, he was also going to speak to the mayor in Brantford, the the Brantford police, the chiefs. Of, of the Six Nations. Uh, 
so you know and then he was he's returning to ottawa tomorrow he's going to get an immediate uh, meeting with the justice minister uh later today we will be forwarding i've already revised my uh, victim impact statement tanis is working on hers now uh, those revised statements will be sent we'll also be sending the decision that uh, based back to the february 8th, uh, 13th meeting okay. with the pro board of canada don tanis we will as we have done for years we'll stay in touch and it's my honor to work with you and and to know you and uh we'll we'll find out where where it goes and um yeah um you deserve protection your family deserves protection on the national parole board must take you seriously. Thanks for talking to us today. Right. Can I just add one thing to that, if you don't mind, Roy, before we go up the air? I know you're tight. But can we certainly encourage, encourage the residents of all, all of the region yep. and your listeners to send uh, notices to the Parole Board of Canada, and you can go, they can go on their website and look for their email address and send statements of support and advocacy for us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 